Yes, I did. I was asked to speak on women in ministry, and I, I, I actually really like talking about this. So it doesn't doesn't worry me as as much as maybe it should. Um, I don't know. I guess people get pretty cross about it online, but I find when you're in a room and you're talking about the issues with people who where there's a degree of trust and relationship, it's 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 a really lovely setting in which to talk about these things. Um, and one of the ways I like to approach it, if this is okay, is to um. It's sort of silly when preachers say, if that's okay, because you know they're just going to plow ahead and big fat do it anyway, don't you? So um, I like looking at it from a, almost a cosmic perspective first and standing back from the issues about who does what and what you call the things that they do in the church and even stand back from marriage and, and the sort of broader human themes and just stand back and look at the way that God has created everything and then see where male and female plays its role within that larger cavern, uh, a larger backdrop, really. um, and then to sort of drill in a little bit on some of the specifics. And so this might fall foul of the whole, the screen is not large enough to see it thing. I'm not sure. But could we just put up the first, this one? Now, how readable is that? Yeah. Christine can read it. This is excellent news. Okay. Um, so this is a, a sort of a scale I, I, I've used to try and walk. And so just bear with me as I walk through. It might take a a while on this, and there's a lot of words on here, okay? This is just a classic Andrew, boil everything down into one page. Um, but it's but it essentially that God has created everything with, if, if you like, there, with complementarity built into creation, that the idea that there are things which are different and fit together. That doesn't mean, by the way, I use the word complementarity as opposed to, at this point, the word complementarianism, because that's a, it's a really, very new term, and it's also a loaded one in the sense that a lot of people think, oh, that means this position in the church and who does what. So I'm, I'm using a more, trying to use a blander term, complementarity, for things that are complementary with each other, that God creates this and this, and they are noticeably different but they're of the same order, and when they come together, there is beauty and there is life and flourishing. That's the, that's the structure of creation, and that that is true in all manner of ways, and that it's to be distinguished from two extremes you can have on creation as a whole, and obviously on men and women. It's to be distinguished from, first of all, from identity. That is the idea that God has created two things which are identical, that are, that are really not to be contrasted with each other, that they are really one and the same, that male and female are one and the same, that uh, sky and earth are one and the same, that day and night are one and the same, that all of the, that, that we've collapsed them into one another. That's one error that's probably more prone in our culture. And you would see in, an, in a very obvious example of this is, again, I don't want to keep talking about trans rights, but actually that's one example where, see, fundamentally there is no essential difference between male and female. Um, and you can collapse one into the other. And if one wants to identify as the other, then you just say, okay, that's what we do. We, we don't really know culturally how to define a, a woman or a man. And you end up with these strange debates about, is a woman an adult human female? And those sorts of things. Because how, how would you narrow it down? Because we're so un, unable to distinguish between the, the sexes. But that's true of lots of things in, in life. And we want to walk through a few of those in a moment. So complementarity is the idea that things which are different come together and fit with one another and generate life and fruitfulness. And that's to be distinguished from identity, which is that the, the two things God has made are the same. But it's also be, to be distinguished from alterity, which is an opposite error, or otherness. Alterity, would, would just, I don't know how familiar that word would be. Um, but otherness, which is where, these, where two things which are sharply distinguished to such a degree that they don't actually come together and generate life, and they are in, effectively set up in opposition to one another. That there is a battle for control between the two that is at the heart of creation. And so those are three ways of reading... I mean, we will talk about them applied to men and women, but there are three ways of reading the nature of creation as a whole. 
that creation is designed in a complementary fashion, or creation is designed without distinctions, or creation is designed in such a way, perhaps not even designed, just it exists in such a way that there is strife and conflict and battle between opposing forces, each trying to conquer the other. Now, obviously, alterity and identity are not Christian visions. Identity is essentially a, is a fundamentally pagan vision, which is that the, the way that God has created the world is not, does not have baked in distinctions, that there is that the gods are almost part of the created world, and that there is essentially no category difference between deities and everything else. I mentioned this the other day. Oneism and twoism. The idea that in paganism, it's Peter Jones's language, I found it very helpful. In paganism, you effectively all that exists is that on the same order of being, there are more powerful and less powerful creatures. You have gods at the top, you have human beings nearish to the top. You might have angels and demons around somewhere in there, and you have then lesser animals, then you have bananas, and then you have amoebae. But you have, there's basically a chain of being, but they're all fundamentally at the same kind of order of being. And that's not a Christian vision at all. I trust we, we know that. That's not how creation is. There is, a, there is God and there is everything else, but there are distinctions built into creation. On the other hand, alterity is, can also be a pagan vision, which is that built into the nature of the way the world is, is strife, conflict, opposition, polarity, and conflict. And that that's the way the, the nature of the way the world is. And it doesn't ultimately come together and fit that, not, you know, that sky is opposed to earth, that the gods are opposed to or working against one another and often working against humanity. Again, you re read the Greek myths or whatever, and you'll see, yeah, this is, this is, there's a sort of a strange mixture of pagan ideas in here, which but often leads to just fundamental conflict at the heart of the universe. It's not ultimately a relationship of love. There is no central unifying principle that holds the whole world together. Instead, there is opposition, and that exists between male and female. It exists between parents and children. Uh, sort of, and you, you'd see that baked in even in you know Greek tragedy in this form of something like the Oedipus story. So there's a sort of alterity within human relations and within creation itself. It's falling apart at the seams. And the Christian vision, of course, the Trinitarian vision, is one in which you have both one and many. So some would say that the, it's one of the oldest problems in philosophy is, oh, God, is the problem of the one and the many. I was going to try and lift this up. That's my mistake. Sorry. But yeah, the problem of the one and the many is, so which one do you lean into? Do you say everything is fundamentally one or everything is fundamentally separate and distinct? Thank you. Um, and in Trinitarian theology, you have the, the many and the one both expressed in the being of God himself. One God, three persons, and so on. But that's a way that, that is a vision of the created order as a whole. And so there's some t distinctions to be made. So I'll just walk down the columns, which kind of have come across as columns, I think. My, my formatting may have gone awry. Um, identity is a vision of sameness. Alterity is a vision of otherness. Complementarity is a vision of union. That is, the two things that are different from each other come together. And you can see that throughout, if you take Genesis chapter 1, you'd read through and say, this is a, a whole load of distinctions that God makes in chapter one. So in the beginning, God created, and then God said that there'd be light. And you think, well, that's probably all you need. Everything is now light. But that's not what happens. He said, and God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Now, we could argue the toss about whether does God create darkness or is darkness just the absence of light and all that sort of thing. But the point is God deliberately ordered the world such that there was both light and darkness, both night. Is that the right word? Yes, both not, both day and night. And that those there is a, a pair which is actually intended to complement each other. That even And you could dis discuss why. That the, 
baked into the fabric of the universe is a, a cosmic rhythm of work and rest, of light and darkness, of day and night, that God wanted, that wanted it that way. Day two, another distinction is made. He separates the waters above from the waters beneath. Day three, he separates the water to leave the dry land. And he's continually doing this work of taking, uh, effectively, creation, when, it init when you're initially introduced to it, comes across as an undifferentiated blancmange. Is a blancmange a thing? Oh gosh, no, this is not translated at all. Yes, it, well, of course it is, you're from Liverpool. Um, but, uh, so what, what, do you, what do you call, what are those sort of angel delight, those sort of whip puddings that wobble and... Yeah, I suppose it is a bit like jelly, yeah. But, um, or, you, yeah, jello, sorry, jelly for you as a jam. It's all very confusing. But anyway, the sort of big, undifferentiated soup of creation. But that's, that's not what God does. God then comes and speaks, and he brings order, and he separates the light from the darkness, day from the night, the waters above from the waters beneath, or sky from sea, the water from the land, the sun and the moon. And he also made the stars, which is one of everyone's favorite verse in Genesis 1. And then the, the, the creatures that fly through the air from the creatures that swim through the sea. And then the land animals. And then he created them, as we heard read earlier, male and female. He created them, separates the days of work from the days of rest. So Genesis 1, if you're almost a word that you could, that running the whole way through it is, and God separated. Or God put this bit over there and that bit over there, not with a view to creating some sort of eternal alterity or polarity between them, but with a view to saying both of these together, different as they are, provide the unity that I want expressed in my creation. I want there to be a sun and a moon. I want there to be light and darkness. I want there to be waters above, waters below, and I want there to be male and female. So it's not a vision in which those things are fundamentally the same, but neither it is a vision in which they are ultimately opposed to one another in an eternal battle. It is a vision of, of union in which there is, I would say, complementarity. I think is a good English word for that, um, for that process or that, that forming. And you, So Genesis 1, that's effectively all that goes on. And I count Genesis 1 as running until Genesis 2 and verse 3, which is where I think the text changes. So that even in the days of work and the days of rest and uh, the, these Jewish prayers... Um, before the time of Christ would say, blessed are you, O Lord, because you separated night from day, the days of work from the days of rest, man from woman. They, they see that as being a, what God is doing. He is do, ordering creation and, putting, and making distinctions between it. Because the pagans don't do that. The pagans, then that, it's, a, it's polemic in Genesis. It's like the Egyptian gods that we, had, we served, they were all part of the created order. You can draw them as, you could act, and as they did. They drew a map of the cosmos in which the cosmos is basically comprised of deities, and so you have the sky god doing this, and then the earth god lying down here looking up, and because they're almost physicalized images of what creation is. But Judah, the Jews didn't believe that. The Jews said, no, there is an invisible, immortal, eternal God who is not at all like us, and there is created order, and within creation are distinctions that God has made to reveal things about him and about the nature of reality he's made. If you have the vision of identity, you end up ultimately with humans and with other things with a vision of interchangeability. So again, our culture leans pretty closely into that men and women, we, we, this is what the Industrial Revolution in the end has, has led to, is, and much of it has been very good, because it means that half of this room are able to do probably much more mentally and physically stimulating work than we would have been able to do before the Industrial Revolution. In fact, probably all of us do more in work that's more interesting. We would all have been farmers. Maybe there might have been one, I don't know, printer or leather tanner or something. But we'd all have been farmers and it would have been exhausting, particularly if you live around here most of the years, not very happy. 
But male and female, of course, have become interchangeable in that transition because machinery means that the limitations, particularly of physical strength, that would previously have meant that women did certain things that men didn't do and vice versa, those limitations have been transcended. And in the last 70 years, the opposite's happened. So it's not just now that men can do what, that women can do what men can do because of physical strength, but it's also that women are increasingly in our culture, the culture desires to liberate women from the constraint of being able to have children in the first place. And so the way that the economy works, the economy grows when you say basically instead of 50% of the people doing paid work, now 100% or best part of 100% does paid work with all sorts of implications for what that means for motherhood and the relationship between work and home. And obviously that's the way our culture is now and that effectively the economy is wired so as to make male and female utterly interchangeable. So there are no distinctions at all. Now, a lot about that is really good. A lot about it means that we are able to do things that better befit our skills. Then, you know, I wouldn't have had the chance to do what I do 300 years ago. I'd have just been farming and so would you. Um, and actually, and so would you, whether you're male or female, you would have had the same kind of role. And now you get, actually, some women are way better at that than a lot of men, but our culture's values don't constrain them from doing it. And so a lot of us are able to flourish in ways that we probably wouldn't have been able to before. But where that leads us, of course, is to a culture is just total interchangeability. A man and a woman are, there is no difference except simply one of chromosomes, gametes, genitals. But those are the only differences that exist. There's nothing else going on here. On the other hand, you have irreconcilability, a vision of alterity is that where you have people who are, in our culture, this isn't common, but in some cultures it would be, where you have, it's like male and female are not only different from one another, but not to be reconciled. There is effectively a battle for mastery taking place. And so a very patriarchal culture might have that. And so, in fact, might have a very matriarchal culture. Well, who's actually got the, the real authority here? Um, it's like a battle. It's being contended over. And sometimes, of course, in our presentation of a Christian vision of complementarity, in a culture that leans this way, is very easy for us to overlean that way and, and highlight almost irreconcilable differences. I think through the way in which debates have happened over the, how to translate Genesis 3, that your desire will be for your husband. And sometimes that can be translated and interpreted in a way that implies there's basically baked into marriage now a battle of wills as to who's going to run the home between the woman and the man. And that implies a sort of, perm that, as if God has just ordained that to be the way it is, that there's now a fight for mastery in the, in the household, in the marriage. Sometimes even just jokes can carry a lot of, I mean, that's, you know, English guy talking, but obviously humor is the only thing we do. Really, everything is always done with a little bit of a comic edge to it. But actually, often those jokes do tell a bigger story about the fact that there is a, a battle, you know, the old ball and chain, the trouble and strife, these sort of Cockney rhyming slang kind of thing. But they're a way of him saying, basically, a man is someone who wants to be free and his wife is shackling him to the ground. Now, it's a joke, but it's a joke that reflects a a vision of irreconcilability, of not of beautiful union, of, of beautiful difference, of coming together, of complementarity, a vision of something quite different and more and darker. You'd use a musical analogy. Identity is like plain song. Everyone sings the same notes, like the Gregorian chants. Sorry, just call back to Enigma about 30 years ago. Um, on the other hand, you have cacophony, the alterity, which again is often expressed actually in modern classical music, and, and not for nothing actually, and it, it's not just an incidental point, but the way that music, that classical high art music now works is one that doesn't reflect fit. In fact, 
fit, beauty, beauty complementarity, aesthetic pleasingness is almost passe. You, the, art, the arts have put, have, for the last hundred years, as we touched on in the, the Romanticism stuff, is pushing the, pushing the envelope as if to say, no, there's a sharp distinction here that ultimately is not going to be reconciled. So music doesn't resolve. Jazz doesn't, as we were talking about the other day, doesn't actually resolve and tidy itself up in the end. It's cacophony. Whereas the Christian vision is one of harmony. The identity vision is pagan or pantheist. The gods are part of the created order, that there is, they're all part of the same soup, as we've said. But the alterity vision is almost like an Epicurean or deist one, which might still be pagan in a sense. But it's to say, actually, the gods are so far removed from the created order that they don't get involved. That they make it, and then they leave it. And, of course, that's the sort of vision of God that many of the... You know, we touched on the other day. Some of the founding fathers had a vision of creation like that. Many Europeans in the 18th century did. Whereas the Jewish Christian vision is that you have complementarity, you have fits of relationship, often even pictured as marriage, between God and Israel, Christ and church. And I'm preaching through Hosea at the moment, so I'm seeing that very, very visibly. The power of the image of God the husband and Israel the wife, Christ the husband, the church the bride. And that, that is the, that's the vision. So it's not that gods are all part of it and it's the same of the creation, but nor are they so far removed they're not involved. It's one of... Of, fit, of dialogue, of fit, of complementarity. The distortion that happens in the identity vision is that male and female become effectively the same thing and interchangeable, as we said. So you find this actually in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. I don't know how many of us read it, probably not as part of our devotions, I imagine, but it is, it's very short and it's very easy to read. It's really fascinatingly, utterly unlike all of the real Jesus Gospels, and you instantly see as um, it's like, so I heard someone describe that the, the four Gospels and then the other Gospels are like the first four seasons of The West Wing and the others that aren't written by Aaron Sorkin. You can instantly tell as soon as you're watching it. And the other Gospels are like this because they have these strange, you know, the very fast, last saying, saying 114, that the disciples turn around and they see the Mary following and they say, Lord, what about her? And the Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Thomas says, oh, let her, I will, I will take her with me and I will make her become a male because only by becoming a male can the female enter the kingdom of heaven. So when the Da Vinci Code and all that 20 years ago was going, this is such a feminist text. They're like, really? Women have to become men in order to enter the kingdom? That sounds as anti-feminist as you can get. It's very strange. That sort of collapsing of the boundaries because it wasn't ultimately a Jewish vision of humanity. On the other hand, you have alterity, male versus female. The Christian vision is male and female together. You could do the same of the heavens and the earth. In identity vision, the heavens and the earth are not ultimately distinct. In the alterity vision, it's the sky against the earth. You almost have sky gods and earth gods. And, I mean, if you ever read the fascinating, um, you know, yeah, very defiantly lesbian feminist writer, Camille Pallier. She's such an interesting person to read. She's very much in this sort of Nietzschean camp. But it's almost like you have sky gods and earth gods. The earth gods in the ancient world, she's an expert on history of art. And she, she shows a lot, a lot of detail how the, the earth gods are these very sort of curvaceous, bulbous, deliberately feminized images. The sky gods are very angular, hard lines. And she says, basically, Western civilization has thrived because it's lent into the clarity, logic, linear male vision against the female earth, bottom-up, chronic sort of vision. And she contrasts the two a lot and says, I just... I'm, I'm in a way the product of or the result of a, a very male versus female and the males won. And that's effectively why Western civilization is different from Eastern civilization. 
That's her argument. I don't, I don't buy it. But it's artistically, there's a lot to it in terms of the ancient way of thinking about the difference. And it's the idea that you have sky gods and earth gods almost in conflict. And again, the Christian vision is, no, heaven ultimately is going to join with the earth. And then, so, yes, they're distinguished. Sky's over here, earth's over here. But the two of them are going to come together and find union. And that's eternity, is the heaven descends. And like a husband and a wife joining together. And the idea that Revelation 21 pictures the sky and the earth being united in marriage, or heaven and earth united in marriage, shows us that the vision of complementarity is an eschatological one. It's one in which these things are distinguished for now, with a view to one day becoming one, which I think is important for our vision of male and female. And identity, the distinctions between all things, particularly male and female, are elided, they're, they're tossed to the side. In alterity, they're exaggerated. Uh, in complementarity, they are enjoyed, or at least should be. Uh, in the, the identity vision lacks transcendence. The alterity vision lacks imminence. As in this vision, everything's so similar that there's no other up there. In this vision, everything's too other and up there and not imminent enough, not present enough. But again, not only in the Trinity, but in the incarnation, we have transcendent becoming imminent. And made. So I think this actually runs through, this is a sort of thread through Christian theology as a whole. Much of it's not about male and female as such. It's about the nature of Christian theology and the nature of creation. Um, Feuerbach had this interesting thing about how what love ultimately does is to universalize and identify. What faith ultimately does is to distinguish and separate. But of course, in Christianity, in Christ, you have a love which is faith which works through love, which both distinguishes and identifies, that both, that both the universal and the particular come together in Jesus Christ. And in this vision, you have profanity without holiness because everything is prof everything's the same. Everything's common. There's no holy because we're all in the soup together. Whereas in the other, you have such a radical distinction that there is violence between the two camps, the sky and the earth, the male and the female but there's not peace. Whereas in the Christian vision, you have holiness because there are distinctions, but you have peace because there is union. And so without, without in both of the other two countries, you don't actually have what Christians mean by love. At the very, but you, don't, you don't have the idea of two different agents coming together and dying to themselves in order to serve the other. That's impossible almost within the, the cosmic geography of these two systems. So this is, that's quite philosophical and airy-fairy, and you're like, where's the Bible and all that? But this is, in a way, riffing off Genesis 1, but trying to say there's more to the distinction between male and female in the text that John read at the start than simply human sex and human gender and sexuality. It's a much deeper trend within Christian theology as a whole, of which male and female is one expression. It's not an unimportant expression, but there's a much bigger story being told here. Um, which I think is very significant. And so what happens then when we come to think through the relationships of male and female, say, in a marriage, is we are effectively wanting to, is to express, in using biblical texts and biblical guidance, to express what does that fit, that, the, the beautiful difference, the coming to the, or difference in union or complementarity, however you describe it. How do you express that in the form of this marriage? And of course, at this point, cultures vary quite widely in what they expect of men and women. And so marriages look different in, they probably look different, if I'm honest, in some parts of this country versus other parts of this country. And I expect they look different in, I don't know, very high earning, two income, high powered urban. Yeah, I mean, the, the people who I met at the fundraiser event I did in New, in New York a month ago 
probably have marriages that just look very different from a much more working class Rust Belt environment or a more agrarian setting, even in the US, let alone across centuries or across thousands of miles away from each other. Marriages just model what that might, or what a Christian marriage looks like in those cultures might look actually strikingly different. Um, and of course, that one of the things that's happening in our culture is that the, the, the cultural expectations have changed so much that the church has sometimes been left wondering, well, hang on, was that expression of it a biblical conviction or was that just a cultural one? Or was it a good way of expressing a biblical value then that in 30 years has become radically obsolete or at least looks very strange? So I remember reading one, you know, the, a big, the big complementarian defense, in, you know, 30 odd years ago, the, uh, the big blue book Piper and Grudem did. One of the examples they gave was about Piper's dad driving the family car. Now, in the 19, whatever it was, 50s or 60s, that probably did express complementarity in a way that, I mean, maybe it still does in parts of this country, I don't know, but certainly where I live, it, it, the other person who drives the family car is like, I'm completely deaf in my left ear, and if Rachel drives the family car, we can talk, and if she doesn't, I can't. So it's just, it's a very, but, but I would never, it would never occur to me if I hadn't read that, that that would have anything to do with the way male and female function in a marriage. And this is, the, that's a silly example, but it's an example of how trying to work this vision out through biblical texts in specific cultures that are moving rapidly is quite challenging. And so you have that in marriage, but you're really then reading Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter 3 and, and Colossians 3 and many other texts, and, and not to mention the examples of marriages in the Bible, and the examples of what ideal husbands do, and the example of what ideal wives do, Proverbs 31, Ruth, whatever. And you're looking and saying, okay, so this is what I think, but guided by all that wisdom and these explicit instructions, this is what marriage looks like in this kind of setting. And so you as we do all the time, and you, every time you do a wedding, you probably teach on this in some form. So that's what happens within the context of marriage. But you're, you're, what you, when you're doing that, you're not simply saying, it says the husband is the head of the wife, the wife must submit to the husband, that's the end of it. What you're saying is, the reason why these terms are used and the reason why this guidance is given is because marriage is an icon or a representative or a picture of something much larger about God and his world and the heavens and the earth and the new creation and the incarnation, all these other things. And you can't get into all of that every time you teach on it, but that's the assumption undergirding the way we talk about male and female. And then the same comes when you come to address the issue of, of men and women in the church. And so effectively then at that point, the, I think the conviction to me that undergirds this is the distinctions between fathers and mothers, that fathers and mothers together produce life, and then neither of them does it on their own, and neither of them can do it without the other, and if you just have, you know, there's no such thing as a father without a mother. It's just not a category. So Jesus, in that sense, is you know he's son, but he's not father because he ultimately doesn't get married, doesn't have sex, doesn't produce human offspring. Um, now he's pictured, of course, as a as a mother and a mother hen, all these things. I know all that, but he but he's it's impossible to be a father without a mother. It's impossible to be a mother without a father. You may not still live with that person. You may not ever have even had these days. You might not even have had sex with that person. But ultimately, life only comes when there is both a mum and a dad. Um, as much as our culture is trying to, <laughs> trying to object to that, um, but in the end, we all know that it's biologically true. And so what happens in the church is the same thing, that life comes when you have fathers and mothers operating together. And so to me, when you come to look at the roles of male and female in the church, I think a starting point which I found, I'd say a starting point, an image I felt very help, found very helpful is simply to think about elders as what fathers do in the home as distinct from what mothers do in the home. 
And we could talk a bit about some of the practicalities. Well, I wanted to make sure we've got time for questions on this. But that's the image that, that overrides it for me. And then when I think when you look through that lens, you realize that there is a distinction throughout the Bible from beginning to the end between the, the people who are ultimately responsible for guarding the sanctuary of God from coming to harm and the people who are not. That actually always the people who are tasked by God with saying, protect, this is sacred space. You've got to protect it from the enemy. Those people are always men in the, New, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Which is not to say that men are... In, it's actually not a role even about, ultimately, about power. It's, a role, it's actually just a role about protection. It's about the people who I'm expecting to put their lives on the line to ensure that this sacred space doesn't come to harm. Going right back to Adam, that's his role. And he's, actually, he's not told you're going you're gonna to dominate your wife, you're going to tell her what to do. No, none of that's what happens. It's like your primary ministry is going to be guarding and keeping the garden. But you need a woman to come with you because without her, people are not going to find life. So you are going to be Adam, the Adamach. You're going to work the land and you're going to protect the ground. And she's going to be the Chava, the life giver, the one in whom the seed comes. So actually, Eve's role in many ways in the story of redemption is more important than Adam's. Adam is used as an anti-type of Christ, whereas Eve, as we saw the other day, is actually more of like the, the, the seed comes through her. That's the way that the imagery works. And... But Adam's role is to guard and protect the garden from the enemy. And he fails, and that's why the snake gets in and the woman gets taken out. But that's why God comes looking in the garden and says to the man, where are you? Even though God knows perfectly well the woman's done it, because it was the man's job to protect the garden and he didn't do it. But then you find the same thing going through. It's the patriarchs. And you find it's the priesthood. So actually the priests in that sense, they're, they're, obviously you have women prophets, but you don't have women priests in the Old Testament because the priests are the ones whose job it is to guard the sanctuary and preserve it. And then you go through, obviously, there are kings. And in fact, there's only one queen, but she is never actually named a queen in two kings. Athaliah, she's a very bad example. She's, she is the ruler, she's the usurper, but she isn't called a queen, even Jezebel. They, they don't have authority in their own right, at least in the understanding, because their role is to preserve the people of God. That, by the by, in my country, that caused a big kerfuffle 500 years ago, because all of these Protestant reformers going, what are we going to do about the fact that it seems like this very passionate Protestant is actually a woman and is on the throne and is helping Protestantism advance against Catholics, often quite violently, but nevertheless she is a woman. Um, and just as an amusing side, John Knox, he of the greatest beard in church history, decided that the way to respond to this problem was to write a tract entitled The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Great and Monstrous Regimen of Women, which I just think, um, but unfortunately John Knox then found out that Mary, Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary, and Elizabeth were all women, and he ended up having to run and hide for his life, um, despite his very bold title. So, just an, an, you know, one of you might one day feel led to write The Second Blast of the Trumpet, again. Um, but, it, but as in the, the priests and the, and the kings are, are men, and then you come into the New Testament period, and of course that's then the apostles, and then it's the elders in the churches. Again, they, I, I, I'm big on this. I think the elders' role is not primarily to is not primarily concerned with exercising power at all. The elders' role is simply one of protection. The elders' role is that Greg Beale convinced me on this in a paper, and it, in fact, just a few miles down the road in San Diego, he did a paper about the extent to which eldership is connected with the tribulation which sounds like a very, you know, Greg Beale, a very Greg Beale thing to say, and it's very sort of seeing Revelation and, and Acts together. But he said, it, it really convinced me because he went to Acts 14 and he said, the apostles gather them together and said, through many tribulations, you will inherit the kingdom. Therefore, they appointed elders for them in every church. 
And I'd just never seen it. I, I, I'm in New Frontiers. We live by passages like that. Apostles appoint elders. But what I hadn't seen was apostles appoint elders in order that the church might be protected as they go through the tribulation from the false teaching that will come in, from the threat. And in, in, our, you know, in our movement, in New Frontiers at the moment, um, in, in eastern Ukraine, it's, it's the elders that are targeted. Because the elders are the people, they're the named individuals who you'd go for if you're trying to stamp out the church. It's the elders who generally, when churches are being persecuted as they were in Dagestan a few years ago, in our movements, it's the elders who get killed. Now, now that's not to say that you know, men are braver. In fact, I think anyone who goes through childbirth is going to have my permanent respect for courage. But it's just that the way that God has configured the people of God to be guarded is through men doing it to lay their life down in order to protect the, the, the sanctuary. And then I think that happens through, yes, the ministry of eldership, which I think is all the way through why the descriptions of elders are obviously every named or every elder we read about, every description of elder we read about in the New Testament is couched as not just men, but those who are, who lead the households well and who are husbands of one, all those sorts of, they're, they're sort of named, very identified in classic male ways in the ancient world. Right the way through, in fact, not just with the elders, but even through to the New Jerusalem where you have the city, which is pictured as a bride, but is guarded by the, these, these 12 walls built on 12 foundations and those are the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes. These sort of, so 24, I mean, I'm not saying physical men, obviously it's lots of imagery in there. But again, even then the walls are built around this sort of the guardianship, the protection, the hedging around is the, the heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus expressed through these sort of male guardians around the edge. So I, to me, the language of eldership as guardianship and eldership as fatherhood is really important. And so I think then what has to happen is we just have to be careful not to overread what that involves. And given, in, in some cultures, it will look like an awful lot, there, there, therefore, is the purview only of men. In other cultures, you'd say, I'm not sure that it really matters whether men or women do almost all of these things. There's a few things that must be done by these guys who are not just male, but are called of God specifically to, to guard the church in that way. But a huge number of other functions don't necessarily need to be done. By, by men or by elders. And obviously the wisdom is then in working out in our culture and context according to the New Testament and reading passages in the pastoral epistles and elsewhere. So how, how do we decide what goes in what camp? But my experience is often that the debate when people talk about male eldership, the debate that they want to have is not really about what, it's not really about whether or not men or women can be elders. It's more about how much do elders actually have to do? What must be done by this group of people? So if you're in a church where, say, it's, again, I use it just because it's an easy example to use, where being male means you, you, you drive a car, then obviously if that's the way that you're expressing these values, there will be an awful lot of activities that are off limits to women, even if they're not gifted by God to do them. Whereas if you're in a setting where you say, no, actually, the, the, what, the only thing the elder has to do is any time there is a threat to the church of perhaps false doctrine or division or disunity, that the elder has to be the person who puts himself in, in the line of fire to protect the church. But that's basically all the elder has to do. Then lots and lo all sorts of other things are going to be open to men and women. And I just think being able to read that through the lens of our own culture and in light of all of the scriptures that apply to this issue is perhaps uh, you know, the, the challenge rather than I think we need to make sure that women can be elders. I think that, a lot of often the debate is what exactly do you mean when you say elders? And I found this in my own church because people come to our church and they say, wow, so women do this and this and this and this. And you've got three women on your senior leadership team and you've got women trustees, which I know some of us have talked about. And you've got women who teach on Sundays. You've got... Now, not all of us are, are there. Not all of us will apply it the way I would. But the point is people then see it and they go, oh, so what I assumed you meant when you sketched this vision 
was something that was, is quite different from what I can actually see when I look at it lived out. And in different ways, probably we all have that. And some people hear our belief, then see it in practice and conclude, oh, that, that can't be quite what I assumed you must mean. And I don't want to get into hot water on specific applications, but I just the principle to me is like, there's probably very few of us, if any, who are saying, no, men need to drive the car. There might be, actually, I don't know. But I would be, I'd be surprised if that was common. But somewhere from there to there's no difference at all. You have elders and you have others and you don't know, it doesn't make any difference. The elders don't do anything. I don't want to get there. But it might be that the number of things that must be done by elders is actually not that large. And it's working out what those things are by conviction and coming to agreement on it. 